Well, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. Again, as always, I hope that you are doing well, and I'm so glad that you are here this morning. We are beginning a new chapter in Exodus this morning, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 16, and we'll begin reading there in just a moment. We saw how uh, Israel has been led out of Egypt. Truly, at this point, we kind of can say that we're done with Egypt for a while, right? We've been in Egypt for a long time, and it's pretty safe to say that we can, we can kind of say we're done with Egypt. We moved into chapter 15. God's people sing as they are on the other side of the Red Sea. They sing of the glory of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, and the love of God. At the end of chapter 15, we saw last week that as the Lord leads them into the wilderness to eventually bring them into the promised land, which is going to be a ways away, he's leading them to actually to Mount Sinai first to receive the law. They get away from the, uh, they get away from the sea, and three days later, they find themselves to be out of water. We have no more water, and there has been no places for them to gather water. And then they come up to the place called Mara, which they name Mara when they find water there, but that water is bitter. And the bitterness of the water causes the people to grumble and complain. And so God tells Moses to take a piece of wood and throw it into the water, and that makes the water clean and, and pure and sweet. And so they drink of it, and they take their, their fill. And what we see in this is we go in this wilderness narrative as we see how the people of God come into these crises that happens to them as they are traveling through the wilderness, because traveling in the wilderness would cause these things to take place. But the real crisis isn't the food or the water or the other things that happen to them. The real crisis is the condition of their hearts. And the conditions of their hearts is, is what? Hearts of stone. Hearts that are faithless, even despite such good things that they saw the salvation of God. And so what we are seeing in them, we are also seeing the need for us, and that is to trust in the Lord. There is nothing more important than the trust in the Lord. And so this morning the story continues, and I have to tell you that the story does not get better but it actually increasingly gets worse. But they cannot stay in the oasis of Elam much longer. They must move on. So let's look at chapter 16 and begin reading in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they have departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then all the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died in the hand, died by, died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I, must, that I may test them, 
whether they will walk in my law or not on the sixth day. When they prepared what, prepare, prepared what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we? That you grumble against us, Moses said. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and morning bread to, to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And Moses, or the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let, not, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and bread worms, and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, and as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, I'm sure to many of you that this is somewhat of a familiar passage, as much of Exodus is. Exodus, as we've been talking about, is filled with those quintessential stories that that filled our, our childhood Sunday school lessons, our storybooks and children's Bibles. But what we see here once again in this second week in this narrative of the wilderness is how much this, this parallels for us not only the gospel, but also the Christian life. It's like watching a movie that's documenting history, and then it's something that we can gain, something that we can learn from it. And from Israel, in the Old Testament, is pattering, pattering for us, us, 
They are, pattering, pat, they are a pattern of, of us. So, so getting into the story, Israel, you know, they set out from Elam. God led them from Marah after making the water clean, sets them to, to Elam where they have been resting and they've been renewing themselves for, for weeks now. And what we see is that when they are led out into the wilderness, physically they may be ready to go, but unfortunately they were not ready to go in the wilderness spiritually. And what we just read shows that. They went into the wilderness of sin on their way to Sinai, and they come upon a, another crisis. Something else happens. They run out of food. As if they didn't know that they couldn't do the math of this is how much food you're going to need to get to the next place or to make it last for a certain amount of time. They run out of food. And the whole congregation now comes to Moses and Aaron, and they complain and they grumble again. And there's more to that, and we're going to talk about that today. And on the, on the surface, again, we, we don't want to minimize, we don't want to diminish the state or the potential uh, devastating condition that they might be in on the, on the verge of starvation, of running out of food. That is a serious problem. And just like we saw last week, they needed water, they needed food. And so God leads them into the wilderness, I think even for that very specific thing, to show them that they need him. Now what I really want you to see from the, from the get-go, just like we saw last week, is God's response to them, to their grumbling and complaining. We're going to unpack what they said. But the Lord's response to them in that situation, in their grumbling and in their complaining, in their lack of trust, was what? Grace and mercy. It's just like that last song that we sang at the end, his mercy is more. I'm, I'm, I'm the sinner. I bring nothing good. I bring nothing clean to the table. I offer nothing but doubt and faithlessness. But his mercy and his grace. And so God provides for his people. He gives them bread. He gives them, gives them meat. And we also see underneath that, through, the, through this whole situation, that God in his sovereignty is also providing for them in their discipleship and sanctification. To draw them in, to test them if they were going to be obedience. And we see what's happening. We see how grumbling and complaining is becoming a besetting sin in their hearts. It wasn't just about a physical problem, the need for food. Their hearts were sick. Now, does all of that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like the, the pattern of the gospel? At this first point that we have to get across in the, in, the, in, the, in the gospel is to realize not only who God is, but who we are. And who we are is our sinners, that our hearts are sick and they are dead. They are hearts of stone, that even amidst such glory and greatness of this great treasure of Christ being held before us, we still will grumble and complain. That's the heart of man. It sounds familiar, it should be. It's the same hearts of unbelief. 
or the same struggle of, of unbelief that we, even as Christians, still struggle with today. Unbelievers are unbelievers because they do not believe. They do not believe in the salvation of the Lord that is in Christ Jesus. And their greatest sin and their greatest need is faith and belief and the repentance of sin. Christians, we are still in the flesh. We are still weak. We are still susceptible to unbelief. We believe, but we still struggle with our belief. We still struggle with unbelief. And today's passage, brothers and sisters, is, as much as this is about bread and flaky things on the ground and all of that, we can try to figure all that out later, but what this passage is about, first and foremost, is about belief. It's about faith. It's about trusting in the Lord. And I want to make four simple points to get that across to you this morning. So just like I started at the beginning of the gospel, not only knowing who God is, but also knowing who man is, our first point, again, we have to start here, is man's problem. And in this passage, we see a micro uh, a, a micro example of Israel that's just shouting at the macro, right? The problem of, of man's sin and man's depravity and man's inability at all to save themselves. We have no ability to save ourselves. Now, certainly there are better examples of man's problem, and there's going to be a big one to come later while at Mount Sinai. We're going to see the all-out open rebellion against God and the idolatrous worship. But the whole point of the wilderness time is to put Israel in a certain place, a certain kind of difficulty, right? To, to stretch them out a little bit, just not even a little bit, right? To stretch them way out to see how they are going to respond. And it exposes in them, as it often exposes in us, unbelief man's problem they have hearts of stone and to put that truth right in front of their faces is what the wilderness campaign does so that they will learn over and over and over again you need the lord you need the Lord. And overwhelmingly, like anyone who reads this narrative should be able to pick up on the condition of Israel here. We should be able to pick up on their condition, right? Their stubbornness, their short-mindedness. Look at verse 1. Number one, first thing I'll say, don't get hung up on that wilderness of sin. It's not implying sin. There's not some theological background here that's taking a place, right? Linguistically, most likely it's speaking about the wilderness of Sinai, okay? So don't get caught up. There's some theological or some um, allegorical thing here that we need to find out. It's the, it's, it's a wilderness that's leading to Sinai. Look at verse 2. It reads out, right? Look how it reads. It reads just like what we saw in chapter 15, except it's intensified, right? First one was about water. Now it's about food, but it's intense, right? And the intensity of it is this. First, the whole congregation now is complaining. The whole congregation is, is grumbling, right? The whole congregation of the people of Israel, they have come out to complain against Moses and Aaron, right? Israel has been out of Egypt for approximately six weeks now. 
They spent most of that time hanging out in Elam, where, where God provided for them so richly. And yet, we know this is not an isolated incident. This is actually the third time that they have grumbled and complained. Remember, on the other side of the, the sea, they complained, God, will God save us? You've let us out here to die, blah, blah, blah. And then at the, uh, at the oasis in, in Mara, right? You've let us out to kill us again. I'm grumbling and complaining. Who are you? Why are you taking us here? This water's bitter. You're going to kill us. And they, come, they complain once again. But now it is everyone, right? Moses is very specifically telling us that this is everyone, right? Not 10% of the congregation, not 20%, but pretty much everyone. An overwhelming majority of complainers. And secondly, it shows us this, that they grumbled again. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Right? And so here again, right, we see the nature of the hearts. Right? We talked quite a bit about this last week. You can go back last week and listen to you if you want to talk about grumbling and all that stuff. But here's the nature of their hearts. And it's for them, it's directional. Right? It's toward Moses and Aaron. They're their leaders. They're the ones that they're to bring things to, certain issues, certain problems. No doubt, that's what their leaders are for. But their doubts and their faithlessness is shown in grumbling and complaining because they did not come with a question. They came with the statement, you've led us out here to die. Not Moses, what should we do? Is now the time that we pray and ask God to give us food? They didn't do that. They grumbled and they complained. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? And what Moses and Aaron point out to us, as they do to them, is that their rebellion, the rebellion of their hearts, isn't toward Moses and Aaron at all. They think it's directional toward Moses and Aaron, but Moses and Aaron are saying, no, it is toward the Lord. It is toward the Lord. This was a rebellion. Yeah, it's not full-on mutiny or civil war, but it's rebellion in their hearts, right? We see verses 7 and 8 where Moses says, in the morning you'll see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Not the grumbling against us, but a grumbling against him. Your discontentment your grumbling is against the Lord. And Moses goes on to say, he says, for what are we that you grumble against us? And basically he was saying this, we're in the same place as you. We're in the wilderness with you. What can I do? Can I throw sand up and all of a sudden there's bread? No, I can't. Why are you coming to me? Your grumbling and your complaining is against the Lord. Your discontentment is the sign of a rebellious heart. And the fruit of a rebellious heart is discontentment and comes out in the bitterness of grumbling and complaining. And that rebellious heart is against who? The Lord. We can direct our grumbling, our complaining against persons or institutions or places, whatever. But the fact is, grumbling and complaining and whining ultimately says that we are dissatisfied in the Lord. That he is holding back something from us. It is impugning him that he is unable to take care of me, or he does not care. 
the heart of discontentment we see here. The exact opposite of what we see with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned that whatever situation, I'm to be content. And Paul wasn't living the high life at that moment. He was in prison. Grumbling, complaining is a heart of distrust and pride and arrogance. And again, as we have said, what does it breed? It breeds bitterness in our hearts. And think about the, the destruction that this was causing in them. Think of the, the destruction that it causes in, in us. Think about it, the relationship with your spouse when you complain to them about them. What does that breed or, or, or do? It doesn't, doesn't bring humility, it brings bitterness. You complain about life to someone else. Is that building someone else up? Or is that grumbling about something around us or something that we have no control over? James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts, it, puts his finger right on it when he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Man, diagnosed. The condition of our hearts, man's problem. Bitterness, immaturity, faithlessness, and it comes out in grumbling and complaining and let me tell you, as you all know, that it is a virus. Because as we see here, it wasn't just a few people, but it was now the whole congregation. Grumbling and complaining is a virus that spreads and breeds discontentment and infects everyone. And again, I want to make it clear, this is a serious situation. No doubt, this is a serious situation situation, but there is never an excuse in responding in rebellion and grumbling and complaining is the beginning of rebellion. The prophet uh, Jeremiah understood this truth and he understood the heart of man and where we need to be careful in understanding of our hearts, where it comes from, he said this in Jeremiah 17, 9, he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, and who can understand it? We must be careful. And the depth of the problem goes even further. You look at verse 3, not only to who they complain to, and they're actually, being, they're actually complaining to the Lord, but they say this. Look what they say. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Did you hear that? Did, did, you, did you look at your Bibles again or read that, verse 3? Look at what he just says. I mean, like basically they're saying, we, will we die by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when, when really we were sitting there and we had all the food that we can eat? When did that happen? 
Well, when, when did that happen? When were they sitting, uh, uh, sitting down and being able to eat as much meat as they wanted, as if they were at an all-you-eat, all-you-can-eat Brazilian barbecue? When? That's, that's the picture that they're trying to sell to, to Moses and Aaron. And the truth is, is they didn't. This is la-la land. This is fantasy land. And here again, just like we saw in Jeremiah 17:9, the deceitfulness of our own hearts to convince us that sin is better. That bitterness and grumbling and complaining is better when really it's not. The deceitfulness of our hearts to romanticize slavery in this way. That's the deceitfulness of our hearts. To convince ourselves that, that sin is better than freedom and obedience to the Lord their God. I mean, think about this. God was actually built into their liturgy already to show them these kind of statements are absolutely false. You remember the feasts? In one of the feasts, what were they to eat? Bitter herbs. And why were they eating bitter herbs? To remind them, hey, Egypt was bitter. Egypt wasn't a sweet apricot or a coconut or whatever. It was not sweet. It was bitter. And maybe sometimes we need to be reminded that slavery to sin is not good. That it was not good. Before we were in Christ, we were enslaved to our very natures and to our depravity that was leading you straight to eternal damnation in hell. Our hearts are deceitful. You'll believe it. I'll believe it. We must be careful. Careful. We must be, we must be weary. Even the Apostle Paul, he understood the condition of his own heart. He says it in Romans chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. The struggle is absolutely real. Our hearts are deceitful. But I think the first thing we should do in understanding this is to admit it. To admit our weakness and to admit that, yes, sin, whatever it is, is still tempting. Sin is still tempting. And why is some sins for you still tempting? Because it's tempting. Because it still looks pleasing. It makes you think back on the quote-unquote good old days that were never good old days. The flesh wants it. Jeremiah 17 again, verse 5 says, The Lord has said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in the flesh and whose heart who believes in the deceptions and turns away from the Lord. And I want to show you one more thing in verse 3. 
because not only is it now everybody and they're fantasizing in some sense of this former life as slaves of being better but listen, listen to what they also say at the end of verse 3. They flat out accuse God of attempted murder. So as if the other ones were bad enough. Like, listen, they flat out accuse God of murder. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Again, their fears are good or true. Their fears are legitimate. Their stomachs are hungry. We get hungry. We understand that. And yes, they're speaking to Moses and Aaron, but remember, Moses and Aaron corrected it and said, no, you're talking about the Lord. They accused God of attempted murder. The deadliest of the three, here in the last one, falsely accusing God. Man's problem is what? Right, which shows his problem in this blame shifting. And here they blame God. I'm going to die. We are going to die because of you. And the truth of the, of the matter is this, is no, you are going to die because of sin. The result is sin, the fall, the corrupt nature of man. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness do they do what? They suppress, suppress the truth. They believe fantasy land. They accuse God of trying to kill them. This is an example of suppressing the truth, totally missing the whole point of being in the wilderness. Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Grumbling and complaining is a sign of unthankfulness. But they became futile in their mind and their thinking, foolish in their hearts were darkened. They not only failed to honor God, but they accused God. Here is the condition of the heart of man. The condition of man, man's problem is that we fail to see God as God and honor him as God, but instead in our faithlessness we blame others for our sin, for our problems, we blame the Lord for those things. And the answer to man's problem is not man, the answer to man's problem is the response of God, and that is his provision and grace. And so here's the second point, God's provision. And so like he provided for them before in chapter 15 at Mara and in Elam, the Lord provides for his people here. Verse 4 says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. In verse, uh, and in verse 8, we see that they, he's going to give them meat to eat in the evening, quail. Out of all the birds to eat, not too bad, not too shabby. I hope they know how to cook it, right? Not too bad. A little bit of rice and some gravy, that's pretty good. So he promises food, and what does God do? He delivers on that food. He keeps his, his promises of that food. And we see that in verses 13 through 16. And it's not just going to be food one day. It's not just food for, 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 for one day, but it will be six days a week. 313 days a year. Twice a day, morning and evening. For 40 years, God would feed his people with bread and meat. 
God's promises and he fulfills their promise to take care of their physical needs. But as we have already unpacked, man's greatest problem isn't just their stomachs, is it? They have a spiritual problem. And God plans to meet those needs as well. As he addresses their spiritual problem, verse 5, he says, On the sixth day, which is Friday, when they prepare uh, what they bring in, meaning when they go out and they pick up the bread or pick up the quail, they're going to do what? They're going to gather twice as much that day so that they'll have enough for the next day. Right? They'll gather enough for two days on Friday so that they would have enough on Saturday and they will not have to go out and gather on the Saturday because the Saturday is the Sabbath. And why? Because the Sabbath is the day of rest. And I know we haven't gotten to the law yet. The, the Sabbath commands haven't necessarily or explicitly been given yet, but it has been built into this people. They understand the day of rest ever since creation. When God created all things, six days, right? And then on the seventh day, he rests. And he gives the command to his people to rest. He gives the Sabbath to them for rest. And we're not going to talk much about the Sabbath. We're going to save that for for, for next time, but the point here is that God provides for them spiritually rest. Now, how, how do you think that sounds to former slaves? Rest. I would say that that would, that would, sound, really, that would sound really good. Like never before that they would now have built into the calendar, and we're kind of using our calendar here, 52 days out of the whole year to rest. God knows that they needed rest. And in that rest, what are they ultimately doing? Trusting in him that he will give them rest. They needed rest. God gives it to them. But we also see how the Lord provides for them spiritually in verse 7, how he is going to show them once again his glory. Moses tells him, you will see the glory of the Lord when the cloud comes down. Verse 10, they behold the glory of God once again in the cloud that descends upon them to, to lead them, right? His glory is manifested in this cloud. His presence is with them to show them what? Why? What, what is God showing? Why is God giving them his presence right then and right there? To show them that he will keep his promises. The food will come the next day. Be obedient. Be faithful and trust in me. God has given them everything that they need to be obedient. You see, our problem, man's problem, our problem is not that we need bread. Our physical needs are important. I think when we leave here today, we will traditionally stop at the Walmart and pick up a, a bag of hot dog buns, because we have hot dogs for lunch on Sundays, most Sundays. We need bread, but we do not live on bread alone. The problem of man is not our physical needs, but it is our spiritual needs. Again, as we talked about earlier, unbelief, the lack of faith, 
not trusting in the Lord. And what are we not trusting? Not trusting his word. Not trusting his word. Not trusting that he will keep his promises. At every level of every sin that you have ever committed, at the first level is this, is the unbelief. That God will not keep some kind of promise or that God has not provided for you in some way and you think that this other thing is going to satisfy you. Whatever it may be. The Lord keeps his promise. And he provides for our needs. He provides for our physical needs. Not, not our wants. And sometimes our, our wants are perceived needs, aren't they? But God provides for our needs. And the Lord will provide for us physically and spiritually. He will provide for us because he has shown us, like he has shown them the cloud of glory the, that go before them. God has shown us something even more glorious than a cloud. And that is the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That we are, that the king of kings, the son of God, the one in whom we confess and profess is God. That he has gone before us. And that he will keep his promises to us. He has shown us his glory in giving us his son. And when you behold that, try to come up with any other conclusion than he will provide. He gives us rest as we trust in him that he has provided through his son. He gives us rest in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Our rest now is in him. I think of all the times where I have felt like or might have been spiritually, symbolically, whatever, in the wilderness in my own life. And underneath all of it, I I, at least I think I have, took some time to learn that the Lord was really trying to show me to trust in him. To lean not on my own understanding, but to lean on him. And when you're in the wilderness and when you have no food or you have no water, you are forced to do one thing or another. To lean and trust on the Lord or grumble and complain. I'm truly thankful. I don't want to go in the wilderness again. But I'm thankful for those times that I've been in the wilderness. And I'm sure that for you, if you've been through and gone through, you've understand that the Lord was... In his kindness, he was using that to show you that he will provide for you and that he keeps his promises. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there now. And I can tell you from my own experiences and from the, the word of God that God provides. And he will provide what you need when you need it. And that brings me to the third point this morning, and that is God's grace. 
in God's provision, we see his grace. I've already mentioned grace before. And we can talk for hours of the grace of God. It's ever abundant and it's ever abounding. He is lavishing it on us. He is giving us grace upon grace. And as we know as Christians, we should be able to say this, that nowhere else has the grace of God been manifested more than his son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to be crucified on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of the world and then given grace to us as unbelievers, as the enemies of God who have shaken our fists in rebellion before his face, that he would save us and regenerate us and then adopt us into his family. There is grace here in Exodus 16, and I think it is pointing to Jesus Christ. The Lord is teaching his people, as we said, right? This is the main point. He's teaching his people to rely on him, to have faith in him. But also, he is teaching them, showing them that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, by the grace of God. It's clear in texts like this, right, in verse 6, that the Lord wants his people to know what? How awesome the bread tastes? How many quail he can give them? No, he wants them to know, this is from me. I'm giving this to you. I'm providing for you richly. It is an outpouring of my character, my nature. It's abounding. My grace is sufficient. My grace is abounding. And I'm lavishing it out upon you. And it's coming to you in this weird, flaky, crispy bread that shows up in the morning. It has a purpose. This daily provision has a purpose to it, to point to the grace of God. He wants them to see it, to know it, that it's from him for his glory and for their joy. And are those things, is that pattern, in a sense, is that pattern any different from us when it comes to the gospel or the Christian life? And the answer is no. We are too called to trust in him. We are called to have faith in him. But what is our faith based in? Is our faith based in the provision of the blessings of our homes? In the blessings and the provisions of our cars? Or comfortable chairs? Or fans? Or food? Or families? Or friends? We do not deny that those are good things that God has given us. No doubt. But our faith is based upon what? It is based upon the work of Jesus Christ alone. It is based upon the grace of God that he has given to us a Savior in which we can be saved. It's not the provision of bread. It's what we read this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna. Why? Which you did not know. Your fathers didn't know what it was. And why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? But man lives by every word that proceeds by the mouth of the Lord. It is by his word. It is by his grace that we rely on. And we know 
as this points forward in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, that it's not manna that we rely on. It is the manna of life, the bread of life that we rely on. Who he himself is, Logos, Tutheu, the word of God. He is the word of God. In John chapter 6, what does Jesus do? Y'all remember that chapter? John chapter 6. You think about it, I'm going to take a swig of water. John chapter 6. Is swig even a word? I don't know. Probably not. John chapter 6, what does Jesus do? It starts out with Jesus feeding the 5,000. We're going to read that at the end of our gathering this morning. He feeds the 5,000. An amazing miracle. Of All of a sudden, from these few loaves and a couple fish, boom, out of nowhere, baskets are overflowing, and everybody eats everything that they need. Boy, this sounds just like Exodus 16, doesn't it? God provides that everybody has everything that they need for that day. And so these people respond. And they respond to Jesus uh, wanting to follow him everywhere. Man, this, this dude's pretty cool. He gives us food. Pretty good bread. Pretty good fish. Comes out of the basket already cooked, ready to go. Not bad. But Jesus knows their hearts. And he knows their hearts and he knows that they really don't want to follow him for him. They were following what they think is the public's truck that goes with him. The food. Jesus understands that and he tells them. It's kind of one of those things. He stops and he tells them. He says, he says to them, do not work for the food that spoils. Ah, Exodus 16, did the food spoil? Yeah. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that, what, endures for eternal life. And what's the whole point of the book of John? Who remembers? Faith. So that you would believe. The food that does not spoil is faith. And so the people were confused, and they're like, well, what do you mean? You're not going to give us any more food? What, 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 is the, what does this mean? How about you just, you give us another sign, give us another sign, and, 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 and then we'll, we'll do what you say. Give us another sign. Give us some more bread. Some stuff maybe we can take home in our, our, our doggy bags. And Jesus basically says to them, I've already done that. I've already given you a sign. If I give you another sign, it'll only put your hearts deeper in the condition of faithlessness. Hearts that are more satisfied with full bellies and full doggy bags than with faith in me. Those are my words. He didn't say that. So Jesus says back to them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. Ah, Exodus 16, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, John 6, 32 and 33. And what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. And the bread that Moses, was ta that Moses gave there in Exodus 16 
was not bread from Moses, but it was bread from heaven. And Jesus is telling them that my Father gives you true bread from heaven. And the bread from God that comes down from heaven, this bread is going to give you life. Not just the full belly. Jesus was talking about himself. He's talking about the true bread of heaven, the spiritual bread that gives, that gives life, that gives freedom from sin. But again, the people, they don't get it. They asked for a sign of, of, of bread. Again, they were looking for the physical bread. They were looking for the earthly bread. They were looking for their, their flesh to be, to be cared for and comforted. But Jesus was offering them so much more, and they did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. Jesus was not offering them just one meal. They were all, he was offering them a meal for all eternity. And he tells them in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is telling them that those who follow him, who believe in him by faith, that he will be with them always. And he will meet every need that they'll ever have. And he will provide. He is showing that he himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, is the answer to their greatest problem. The one that we've already identified earlier at the beginning of Exodus 16. Well, that's not the end of the story. Because guess what rears its ugly head? And that is man's problem. Man's problem rears its ugly head. And when they didn't get what they wanted out of Jesus, guess what they do? They grumble and they complain. They grumble and they complain. And they just wanted bread. And they didn't know because they couldn't see and they couldn't hear that Jesus was offering them so much more. As Jesus flats out says it in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is what? His flesh. Jesus took right from Exodus and he pointed them all the way to the cross. As, he do, as he's doing that for us now, for us to understand that God's provision of the manna from heaven is pointing straight to the cross where the grace of the God was magnified in the crucifixion of the Son of God. Manna was the provision for the grace of God for his people in Exodus 16. As the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ, is the provision for us of the grace of God for our salvation. As it was teaching them to depend on the Lord every day, that God would provide every day, we see also in Christ that he will provide for us every day. Our faith continues to grow. Bread has its limitations. 
Manna in Exodus 16 had its limitations. It only lasts so long. It needed to be gathered every day. But, but God's grace that is provided through his son, Jesus Christ, as he is telling these people in John chapter 6, that this is the bread that you eat once and it's done. No more gathering, no more harvesting, but salvation that is true and forever. It's bread that has come down from heaven. It has condescended. And the Son of God, who has come to be a ransom for many. And so we understand when we read about the manna in Exodus chapter 16, we should think very, very quickly that that is the manna of life that is pointing to Christ. And Jesus sort of ends, ends in his talk to them in invitation as he invites us he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Come, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father who whoever feeds of me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And the invitation is the same to us to come. To come and believe and to feast upon the word of God. And the grace of God is right there. Come and eat. Come and delight. Come and eat of the bread of life. Brothers and sisters, our faith is set and grounded in Jesus Christ and the grace of God that has been revealed to us through his son and through his word. And unfortunately, this is not the end of the passage. That they get the food and they get the cloud and the glory of God and all these wonderful things. That's not the end of the passage. Because we understand that in that, in the wilderness, as God is providing richly his provision and his grace, he's also testing them. He's also testing them. Right? So he's testing them to let them know, to show them once again the same things. That The same things. Are you going to believe? Are you going to follow? Are you going to trust? Back at verse 4, we hear the Lord telling Moses all that he's going to do. He's going to test them, whether they are going to walk in the law or not. Will they do what he tells them to do with the provision he gives them? Right? He tells them, here's the provisions, but this is what you are to do with these provisions. We see the descriptions in verses 5 and verse 6 and then 16 and 18. And he gives these instructions of the test, right? And he tells them what's going to be on, on the test. And in this test, the instructions could not be clearer, right? He gives them the study guide, and then he gives them the test, and he said, guess what? This is going to be an open book test for you. Essentially, all you have to do is be obedient to it and put down the right answers. It couldn't be more clear. All they had to do was obey the Lord on his terms, and to collect the meat and the bread the days that he's, they're supposed to and only collect what they need 
and eat what they need and do not save anything for the next day. But on the sixth day, gather twice as much as you've had before you had for one day so that it will last for you on the Sabbath day. Seems pretty easy. Seems, seems like a pretty easy, it's very descriptive. It even gives the measurement of an omer. You know how much to get. Will they trust? Will they have faith that God is going to provide the next day for them? You know, when Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And y'all know the rest. Give us this day our daily bread. And you think Jesus is not alluding back to this? That the Lord will provide for you each and every day? We, we, we put so much in the, for the future, don't we? And we forget very often that his grace and his mercy is sufficient for today. And we presume, we presume the future in such ways that it causes us to unbelief. Jesus, is, I think, is alluding to this test. The test of will you believe that God will give you what you need in this day? teaching us to trust in him that providentially he will provide day after day and the lord tells uh, tells also to moses he tells them don't leave anything till morning all that you gather that day don't leave any of it eat it all or get and then get rid of it but there's not going to be leftovers we're not doing leftovers no doggy bags no leftovers and the reason is because I want you to see that my grace is as sufficient as it is today, as it is for tomorrow. And if you're bringing a doggy bag from today tomorrow to, to the next day, you're not relying on my grace on this day. You're not relying on my, my mercy for this day. And they didn't listen. Essentially, if you want to know the end of the story, we already read it, they failed the test miserably, right? And it says some of them, they, they kept what they had been given to the next day. And it says that it had worms in it and it stank. And you know what I thought of? This is, this is my mind. You, you ever opened up your pantry that one day and you got that smell? And you instantly knew, if you have the experience, that some potato has rolled somewhere in the corner or behind something and that sucker has rotted. And you have to find it. And if it's gone too long, don't grab it too quickly. It would be like exploding on you. And it would be like weird and spiny like worms because it's growing. It's gross. It's terrible. That's what I thought of. That instantly, this great food that God provides, you open it up the next day, I'm going to have breakfast. 
No thank you. God kept his promises. He keeps providing for his people every day. And the instructions were very clear. I told you, it was an open book test. Collect as much as you need. Don't save any for the next day. God gave them what they needed. But they failed. And again, looking at Jeremiah 17, verse 10. They're revealing much of our hearts that we don't trust in God for the next day. And the Lord says, the Lord searches the heart and he tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. He doesn't test us to bring us to failure, but he tests you to increase your faith, to build you up in faith. But I, but I want to encourage you. I want to kind of come back at this really quickly as we, we're preparing to end. Look really quickly. The, the, the point is for faith, not, not failure, but we know, our, we know each other. Like we know ourselves. And often in those tests we do what? Do we succeed or do we fail? We fail. I fail. Often in these things. Because often I, my, my flesh's desire is to, is to hoard up. To come up with plan B. They come up with other, other things. And I see the consequences of not being obedient to the Lord of, of that sin. I see the stank that kind of comes up in my life, the rot in my heart or in my mind because I've allowed these things to take place. The discipline, the Lord disciplines the ones whom he loves. We read that in Deuteronomy this morning. Did you, read, did you hear that? That he disciplines the ones whom he loves. He loves you. And again, as you do fail, as I do fail, as much as we have the victories in those things, we pass those tests somewhat, that what we understand is again and again the beauty of the gospel and the sufficiency of the grace of God to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean quit. That doesn't mean intentionally fail every test because of grace. That's not understanding grace. That's Romans 6. What it means is to build your faith and to trust in the Lord today, even more so, that he will supply all of your needs and he has shown himself to do so in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you trust more in the bread of this world? Do you trust in the things that you have accumulated around you? Or in the things that you want to be accumulated around you? Do you trust more in your abilities to provide for yourself than the Lord providing for you? Is what you are lacking giving you doubt of the Lord's provision? If you've answered these questions and answering yes in any way, then what we have said today, you should come out of this, is to cease your striving. Come to Jesus, the manna from heaven, and he will give you life and he will give you rest. 
He is more loving, patient, kind, merciful, and gracious than you will ever, ever know. You will never exhaust the love of God. You will never exhaust the grace of God. Never. You'll never really know. We will often fail. I will often fail. You will often fail these tests. As we are drawn into the wilderness, as we live in this fallen world and with our fallen natures, but we understand this, that the man of life is showing us and telling us over and over again from the word of God that his grace is sufficient and for his power is made perfect in weakness. And I want you to hear this as we close from Lamentations chapter 3. Out of all places, right? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Amen.